encouraged, not burdened by the history that they create. They know what is expected of them. They are Manchester United. Welcome in listeners to another episode of the Busby Bay podcast. I'm your host, Colin Dams, joined as always by Nathan Heinschel and Polly Questel. And a special guest returns. Uh, we've got Carl Anka of The Athletic back on the podcast. Carl, how's it going? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Um, it's really, really hot. Um, and I've heard it's going to be really, really hot in England. But, yeah. um, you know, staying inside, there's Manchester United preseason to watch. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we have this pretty much every summer where UK Twitter is talking about how hot it is and American Twitter goes, wait, but the temperature isn't that bad. And then UK Twitter goes on this very long diatribe about how our houses don't really have air conditioning and blah, 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 blah. Public transport isn't built for it. Um, But I think this is summer one, it's going to be finally hot enough that American Twitter goes, oh, no, that really is quite hot. And two, um, the, the, the air conditioning conversation has finally cut through. So yeah good luck to everyone that's the commute next week yeah best of luck to you but um uh so i guess just get right into it um call you wrote this week about the entorno of manchester united and yes. how that has kind of fit into this manchester united preseason <laughs> and just as a concept it was something you know we really vibed with and uh i was wondering if you just wanted to Talk a little bit about that and how that idea kind of came to you and your approach to writing about the first game. Sure. So I read recently Simon Cooper's book on Barcelona. I think it's a fantastic book and you can't write a book in that style on every football club. But I definitely want every football club. I definitely want someone to try and write a, a book in that style on all the major football clubs. And in Cooper's book, he mentioned how when Johan Cruyff was both a player and a manager, at Barcelona, he used this word called entorno, which translates to English as environment. But he used it to describe the the network of fans, former players, club officials, pundits, pod, well, not podcasters, writers, journalists, everyone that was around Barcelona that had different opinions on how Barcelona was supposed to work. And I've been thinking about this for quite some time, about how Manchester United have their own unique entorno. You know, I mean, you know, I rely on Manchester United to pay my rent. Uh, all of you on this podcast have some form of connection to Manchester United, have opinions on how Manchester United can work, and you've now used that to explore your own creative faculties. This is what Manchester United can do. It's a very broad church, and the Entorno is particularly stretchy at this point in time. Uh, I think since Eric Ferguson retired, there have been groups within groups uh, various civil wars, uh, loads of subsections, uh, and I think the entorno of Manchester United has been particularly bad for the majority of the f- first half of 2022. And I think more so than you know getting players up to fitness um, and and getting some tactics across. I think the m- key thing for Eric Ten Hag this preseason is making sure the entorno of Manchester United believe in him. Uh, and I keep saying this thing. So much to those my friends, which is basically Ten Hag has a plan for me, which started off as a joke, but I, I am now just keep telling it to myself every time 
United seem to be doing something that I don't quite make sense of. I go, can I keep telling myself Ten Hag has a plan? Just trust the plan, which I haven't necessarily felt that way about every single manager post Ferguson. And I think if Ten Hag can get more buy-in from manager, from fans and from players to go, even if I don't understand it, I trust Ten Hag to understand it. That will be the, the key success to get all that on side before Brighton, which will be its own unique situation. Right. Do you think the, sorry, Con, do you think, is it a case of the Intorno not being quite good enough or just being too large? So, I mean, Manchester United's Intorno is, is one of the biggest in the world. And I think the Intorno, he's building from an exceptionally low base. I am going to wager that all three members of you on this podcast have had a point at the end of last season where you just couldn't be bothered with Manchester United, where the apathy was just simply too much, and you're like, ugh. And yeah, it started in November. Yeah, right. And 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 I think not just Manchester United, but all forms of social change. Apathy is the greatest enemy rather than anger. And I think United have had two or three years or two or three half seasons where anger has been the prevailing sentiment. Uh, and even if you didn't like. Even if, if you liked Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or didn't like Ralph Rangnick or whatnot, there was there was at least some anger there. And I think particularly in those final away games last season, there was a real apathy. There was a real, what is the point? What are we fighting for? Why are we doing all this stuff? I saw quite a few Manchester United fans saying that the end of last season was the furthest away they felt at Manchester United. Like they just felt really disconnected from that club. Um, and I think Ten Hag needs to, to get everyone plugged in. That is very, very hard to do. And it's going to be exceptionally hard to keep everyone plugged in on the same page and agreeing with each other, especially at a time where United... I mean, I think we're all allowed to say Manchester United's aim for this season is top four. But also, there's that... I've got that horrible thing in the back of my head where if Manchester United have a bad result against Brighton or don't have a great result against someone in September... It all begins again and people talk about Ten Hag not having hair on top of his head. Uh, I think that's the thing. The Intorino of Manchester United is always this. It's a tinderbox. It's a hornet's nest. It's a very delicate thing that can get very angry very quickly. And, and Ten Hag basically needs to keep that settled and need to believe in what his methods are for as long as possible. Um, and if he can do that, then he, he's basically a genius. But how much of that come how much of that of that what say all right I, my feeling is more like oh brighton will probably go fine but then the if there's a bad result right after that and you know like the previous years have been where they win the first game and then and then the bad results come and, and then we're taught but all that is nobody in the club is going to be talking about how he's bald and uh, and all these other nonsense things that we will see when whenever we mm-hmm. sign on to the internet how much of that penetrates into the club? Like, yeah, sure, he'll probably be aware of it, but how much will that would that even affect him at all, or not? At not would it affect him? But you know. So here's what we we know: Ten Hag is a very principled individual. So he is of, I'd say he's he's probably the most pragmatic IX manager we've had in a while. He's probably the second most air quotes Croyfian manager we've got in the Premier League so if you if you 
if you think about all the managers in the Premier League, all the ones that very much go, Johan Cruyff has good ideas. You know, number one follows his ideals pretty quick, keenly. You've got Pep Guardiola, and you go down the ladder, and there's Thomas Tuchel, who's probably the most pragmatic of, of all the Cruyff-educated people, and then Ten Hag is in between Tuchel and Pep. And Cruyff ideas are good, but also sometimes hit along to the big man. And I think something that's been really interesting in these preseason interviews with the players, all the players have essentially said, it's very good to have Ten Hag, he's really demanding the training, we're learning new stuff, that's quite interesting, and we're all really aware of how bad last season it is. And it feels as if they are subtly, and sometimes not subtly, saying Ralph Rangnick was a disaster. And I think the players seem to have bought into Ten Hag's ideals already, and the way they're playing those two games, that they're playing... Right, again, I'm going to put this in air quotes, modern football. They're doing some of the principles that you, you've, we've seen for a lot at Chelsea. We've seen for a lot at Liverpool. We've seen for a lot at Manchester City. We've seen for a lot at Bayern Munich. I think that's good. I think whether or not people calling Ten Hag bald or making comments about his tan suit or, or talking about his English, whether or not that will cut through. I mean, the big test is Manchester United to play Liverpool on the 22nd of August. And there's been... Uh, more than one post-Ferguson manager who has had their entire season change based on a, a game against Liverpool. And I think if Ten Hag can, can, can navigate that game properly, and get a result or, or get a valiant losing result, um, then I think that buy-in will, will stay in there. Buy-in is, is that really strange and tangible thing. And it seems as if you know the more people are talking, the more players are coming through the door, the buy-in for Ten Hag increases. He's, he's just got to keep it there for as long as possible, especially in a season where Manchester United fans know they are probably going to be fighting for fourth place. It's it's interesting, too, because it's like, I mean, obviously we've had so much experience of the negative aspect of it post-Ferguson, but there's also that, that need for balance in terms of when it does swing the other way. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't you talked on the last podcast on the athletic about getting carried away and made a bunch of jokes about that. But like, it really is this (laughs) such a real thing to see happen in real time on, you know, just the Manchester United Twitter first, for instance, when something is going well and see everyone get caught up in it. And there's all these players that fans and the Intorno are so like happy to revolve around and happy to welcome into the Manchester United club culture. And a lot of players in the current squad, the, you know, fans feel that way about it or hoping can kind of turn it around this season under a new manager. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think Martial's having a very fun preseason already. He, I mean, we know Martial has his own, you know, fan base within a fan base, Martial FC. I've, I've spoken quite openly about how I'm a now retired member of Martial FC. If you look at the player of the month awards since uh, Louis Van Gaal's first season, Anthony Martial is one of the, I think he's, if you, if you just look at which players since Van Gaal's second season, even, you know, the players have won the most player of the month. Martial is still, I want to say third, but Martial hasn't won a player of the month. I was going to say at least top three. Yeah, Martial hasn't won a player of the month in such a long time. You know, at the moment, I think one of my notepads have it. I, I have a little note thing, but yeah, Martial is one of the highest player of the month members that I remember talking to someone at, at Manchester United about it and he goes yeah i think martial fc probably have an effect there and you think you know this is anti martial he had a he had a terrible season in in 2021 has a really ineffective loan spell at, at sevilla and yet he scored 
one chip goal of Alison Becker, a pretty decent finish against Melbourne victory, and Manchester United fans are, are beginning to believe again. And I know it's only preseason. You're not supposed to get carried here, but as I said on Talk of the Devils this week, I think if you're a Manchester United fan, a lot of this is brand new, and a lot of this is quite exciting. I haven't I haven't seen a proper into I haven't seen Manchester United fullbacks invert and get into the half spaces properly. I, you know, we watched we watched Dallow try that against Villarreal at Old Trafford, and it was an absolute disaster. So to see so this, bad. so to see this properly happen is quite nice. You know, I've 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 seen Anthony Martial press for for small segments against Manchester City, but if you can properly st- string together loads of pre- high pressing performances, oh okay, maybe you know it's the the gift from the office, no doubt about him, ready to get hurt again. <laughs> yeah, with Martial, my my whole thing is. If you look at his career, it's been good, not so good, good, not so good, good. We're we're on that. I I, I don't think he's the answer, but I think you if you can get a good season out of him, he'll do for another year. And you'll probably need to find somebody else next summer. But what Martial will do is is get the bet the way he plays. He's not going to, even on a good season, he's not going to score 25 goals for you, but he's going to help other players play well. Mm-hmm. And, and yep. suddenly you'll get that rebound from a lot of other players who did not have good seasons last year. He's a, he's a fascinating player in that. And I may be misremembering this, but I, I feel as if at some point, Rafael de Silva said Anthony Martial pretended not to understand English so and just ignore what Louis van Hull said on the coaching ground. Oh, that wasn't an article. I remember that. You're, yeah, you're I, feel, there. I feel as if that happened and I've Googled it three or four times to, to, to put in a hyperlink in an article, but I haven't found the, the news story. So please, if you listen to this and I'm wrong, please correct me. But I, that's something that sticks in my mind. And Martial, when Martial burst on the scene, two things struck out. Amazing close control and amazing finishing ability. He was an 18-year-old that finished goals like a 24-year-old. And then he became a 24-year-old with finishing ability of a 24-year-old and just no interpretation of space that you'd expect from a 24-year-old. And we know he's, his, his finishing ability is not, it doesn't stick. It can completely fall off a cliff due to a number of uh, societal reasons, shall we? So, so Louis van Gaal eventually just like, I don't know what's going on with this kid. Jose Mourinho very clearly just lost patience with him entirely. And I, I want to say did some pretty mean things to him in around Manchester United. And Martial has vaguely alluded to that not being pleasant. Solskjaer really liked him because Solskjaer, if you look at the way Solskjaer talks about his strikers, Solskjaer gives extra time of day to the good finishers. Uh, and I think Solskjaer's thing was, if you if you know how to finish, great. I can teach you the other stuff first. But if you don't know how to finish, then I'm not really gonna. Your t- my my uh, patience with you will be shorter. So I think that's a big difference between how Solskjaer is treated. Someone like say Lukaku, who has a better all-round game to to Martial, but is a worse finisher than Martial. I think that was one of his biggest weaknesses. Is he seemed to even when when things weren't going well and and mm-hmm. some players needed to come off. He wouldn't take them off because he see, he had that old striker mentality of, well, all they need is one chance. If we just yep. get them one chance, they'll score. And it was like, yes, but you need someone to create that chance. And they are not doing that. I, I always, I always, I try, I mean, if you, if you look at a manager's um, substitution record, 
over a season, like you want like a big sample size, so 25, 30 games and go, this is how this football, this manager looks at substitutions. Uh, and I always think you, you can really compare them as the cooks. So um, Gareth Southgate gets a cookbook, reads the recipe and goes, I'm going to follow this to the letter. And if at some point in time, the, you know, something starts burning or something smells wrong, but the cookbook doesn't say change it, he won't change it. And he, he goes into games with a preset plan and he won't make a substitution until because if the preset plan didn't say make a change early, he, he won't do it. And Solskjaer always struck me as someone who would be willing to let food burn or go over the hob for a little bit extra if he thinks, hang on, there's something in here. Like, I'm willing to get let this burn a little bit because I want to get the glaze just right. And I, that always struck me as his sort of substitution thing he was far better at making attacking substitutions than defensive ones and i think a real um a victim is probably too strong a word but someone that really that didn't it really didn't suit him was axel to uh, i think to really didn't quite understand how social went to use substitutions as well um and ten hog substitutions i will write about that around about christmas time in a quiet week during oh no wait there's got a world cup <laughs> Are you going to the up? Uh, I will not be traveling to Qatar, no. Got any predictions? It's, it's, Fran- it's France's World Cup until proven otherwise. I, I think that the World Cup will be won by the by the national team that can su- most successfully transport club football methods. Uh, and at the moment, now that Italy isn't there, it, it is France. But there is something there is something about Spain that has me a little bit like hang on no one's talking about Spain they're quiet why are they quiet um but yeah I'd say I'd say it, it France France are deserved favorites uh, I want to say that that was your Euros prediction as well but I can't quite remember my um, Euros league was very much yeah. this is France it's every, every it's yeah it's like it's lazy but every every tournament I do the same thing is like you know, 10 years ago it was like oh it's Germany and now it's oh it's France I can't see how they lose other than some fluke Thing happens. Um, well, it's like the World Cup first, curse, right? First you World Cup it. you remember watching? The first World Cup. Um, my dad let me stay home from school in the morning to watch USA Germany in 2002. Okay, so do you have a sort of Brazil tendency? I did like as a teenager because I knew Brazil they're supposed to be good, and I remember I remember watching them in 2006 and. Uh, when America was still pretty naive. So like ESPN was just super hyping them because they knew that's what people will recognize. But I, I never really saw the good Brazil. So my one, I had a theory for a while, basically the, the team, the country that wins the World Cup and the first World Cup you remember watching is the country you predict to win every World Cup after that. So I, my brain just is always oscillating between France or Brazil to win the World Cup, every World Cup. Who's going to win? Well, France. France won France 98. I kind of remember that one. Um, and Brazil won 2002. So, and I do remember that one. So those two are always going to be locked in my mind, regardless of economic circumstances, development of other nations and whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, so this is my working theory. I, I am yet to see it disproved. And when I do, I'll, I'll delete some tweets. My, <laughs> my old working theory was you can predict the World Cup based on who won the Champions League like the year before. Oh, like with with um, when Barcelona, uh, Barcelona were winning it, they won it in 2000, 
uh, somewhere around there. Yeah, 2009, oh, no, 2009 with a side made up of yeah, I and the Spanish side yeah, was yeah. predominantly Barcelona. And then in 2013, it was Bayern and, and Borussia Dortmund. And then okay. Germany were predominantly that. And then France is just kind of everywhere. And yep, yep, yep. fell apart there. But but also like Real Madrid were kind of made up of everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that kind well, of. Helping your prediction, uh, Spain won the first World Cup I watched. So. <laughs> Okay. Okay. New adopter. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I, Nathan was a little bit late to the soccer game, so uh, I I was wondering if I was gonna bring him into the Anthony Martial conversation because that was like the one of the first players that really brought him into Manchester United. Well, it, I mean, without relitigating what we've talked about on the pod before, but it, I I grew up playing. Um, we just our cable package never had the channels, I so. See. And my family's from Ohio, so I grew up on football and hockey and basketball. But it was a sport I always played. I was always interested in it. I was able to start watching the World Cup when ESPN got the rights. Um, and then in college is when I really started watching it in 2013, 2014. I watched that Champions League. Of course, my first United year was David Moyes. So I've only ooh, known pain. Ooh, ooh. I've only known pain. <laughs> so it's going to mean so much more for me than anybody else if United <laughs> ever makes it back to the mountaintop. So, Damn. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, that was my first United game was the uh, Inter Milan game at uh, FedEx Field. I, I still complain to my buddy that he took me to that game and like forced me to be in your life. that day. Yeah, ruined my whole life. I haven't known <laughs> happiness since. Uh, the, I always say the Moise was my footballing puberty. So, you know, <laughs> yeah, that we you, you support United since since the, the early 90s, mid 90s. All you knew was success. And then you had the Moise year and you just went, wait, what? I, Tom Cleverley isn't actually good. You, you, you have the thing of I lose. I can lose at home. What? <laughs> I'm not going to be in the Champions League. Huh? And it was a real sort of, oh my God, maybe, maybe for, you know, it was my first sort of football is suffering. And then my non United supporting friends, you know, people who you're, you've support teams in League One and the Championship and people who've supported teams that have gone bust and whatnot. I go, yes, football is pain. This is awful. This is the worst thing you can do to yourself. That doesn't involve imbibing some sort of illegal substance, and you know, even some of the legal ones. Like this is this is a unique form of addiction we have. And I, oh, oh, I think the Moise, the Moise was one of the great ones for my football education. I probably wouldn't have taken an interest in tactics if it wasn't for the Moise because it was the first time I went. This isn't working. Why isn't this working? And that began my process of trying to learn about how football actually works. Because when, when it works, you don't really care, you know. So then how did you feel going into the Van Gaal year? Um, going through Van Gaal? So Van Gaal, oh, just weird because it was esoteric. It was so boring. out of sit. Not, it was boring. Yeah, yeah. I will. I, mean, I always have to remind myself how boring it was. But I find it such an experimental year. And so, you know, you do those sort of data plots and charts. And there was all these dots about all the all the football clubs. And if you were good at defending, you were in the top right. And if you were bad at defending, you were in the bottom left. But Van Hal's one was top left. And you're like, they're good at defending, but they're doing something completely wrong or that modern teams wouldn't do. And Van Hal was such a interesting character. Um, and uh, there's there's a there's that tweet that goes, you know, what lost bits of of pop culture and media would you most like to see? And one of them, you know, you're supposed to say, oh, 
this album where Biggie and Jay Z would have got together, or you're supposed to say, oh, the cut of you know, the the director's cut of certain certain film. But for me, one of them legitimately is season three of Louis Van Gaal at Manchester United. What would that have looked like? I know, I know, I, I know it would have been boring. But also, part of me wants to look into that parallel universe. Going, what the? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> I remember this... being so torn that year because I was just like, I can't do another season of this. I just can't. <laughs> it's it's awful. But, but also... if we get rid of this guy, Jose Mourinho's coming in, and I was like, and I don't want that. And I, th- I think. I well, said... do you think we could have got the third year had it not all of a sudden turned into an arms race when City brings in Pep and Liverpool brings in Klopp? No, there's no way Van Hals lost three years. Okay. There were, there was. I think the as is now post United tradition, when the manager leaves, that there, there tends to be quite a weighty dossier on on the things that went wrong. Um, and I think the things that were mentioned in Van Hals exit interview were so the feeling between player and and manager was so negative. I don't think a third season would have would have happened there. Uh, I do remember when when Marino was being linked to Manchester United. I said it's like walking through the desert to sweat out or cold. We don't. It's not that bad with Van Hal. You just need to get the secession plan right. Uh, and and there were two or three times looking at Solskjaer's United where I really thought if Solskjaer had succeeded Van Hal instead of Mourinho, United would have been a far better place in 2019-2020. The, the the mental gymnastics that we would do that the people that didn't want Jose Mourinho to come in would do to try to convince themselves that Louis Van, Van Hall was like, okay. But I, <laughs> I remember that being like the last time that the fan base was, was truly united because I, I, I remember there was a little bit of, Oh, we shouldn't sack David Moyes because we don't want to become a sacking club, but everybody kind of agreed. This guy's not up to it. Um, we got to get rid of him. Louis Van Gaal came in and, Everybody kind of agreed that's a good appointment. There's a good plan here. Three years, then we're going to go to Ryan Giggs. Everyone agreed this is really boring. We can't we can't do this anymore. But then it was Jose Mourinho came in and immediately it was people were like, this is amazing. He's the best. And other people were and, and the other half was just like, this is a terrible move. And right there, Sounds the a- dividing line came in the fan base and it's never gotten back. I was going to say, Paul, I think you could change the names there in terms of everyone's like, oh, this is great. He's great. And everyone else is like, wait a minute uh, to, you know, someone last it's season. Sucks. And the conversation would be, still be about the same. It's, 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 I think we are. And I'm, I don't think this is a uniquely United situation. I think this is just, you know, the problem is capitalism. Um, I think we are we are now modern football is now in a, in a state where you don't get three. You know, one, we know managers rarely last three years anymore. Bella Goodman theory, Larry Bird theory, just just the the margins between success and patience are razor thin. And two, the Premier League right now is so uniquely difficult. In you know, if if we went through a list of who are the ten best football managers in the world, four of them are in the Premier League. Like you can't just be kind of good as a Manchester United manager. You can't even be one of the best football managers in the world right now because Jurgen Klopp's over there and he's got four or five years under his belt getting Liverpool to play exactly the way he wants Pep Guardiola is over there and he's got three or four years four years of getting Man City to play exactly what he wants and they have creative accounts and possibly unlimited budget and a, and a new Ivan Drago style striker um, Ten Hag I think is one of the best managers in the world 
I think he's probably top 10 in my imagined list or, you know, top 15 at the moment. I think one reason why Manchester United went for him over Pochettino is because in the process of getting your team going from where they are to becoming a Ten Hag team, he's able to put in better checks and balances so you don't get humiliated in the same way that the process of becoming a Pochettino team just takes a bit longer and it's just a bit harder to perfect. And he doesn't quite have the, oh, no, this process isn't working. I can just change this up slowly and adapt. And I think that's why Ten Hag has the job. But even then, is Ten Hag's tactical prowess enough to get in the top four when you've got Liverpool and Man City, they're going to probably going to take the top two. You've got Chelsea with Thomas Tuchel and this new ownership I still can't quite make heads or tails of. And you've got Antonio Conte, who's just been given a large amount of money to go build the exact squad he wants. Mm. And, and it's that thing of once you get that, then it becomes a question of, are you a Manchester United fan who's able to go, Ten Hag's job is really, really hard, even if everything works out for him, I'm going to give him an extra year and a half. Or are you the United fan that goes, we finished fifth and we got knocked out of the Europa League quarterfinals on penalties. This isn't working. Let's go get bing, bang, boom. I think what might happen this season is, is Ten Hag will get essentially a, a quote, you know, quote unquote free hit of a season. If not because, I mean, I can't think of any other managers out there. But that'll change in three months. There's always a hot new manager. No one was talking about Eric Ten Hag two years ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, a little bit, because, you know, two years ago, he had the 18-19 Champions League under his belt. Right, but he had that, and he won a lot, and he's won a lot with Ajax, as yeah. you should. You should yeah. win with Ajax. Yeah. I think the Is, is the Champions League run not... Like- is the Champions League run not similar to basing a decision on a player off of he had a great World Cup? No, because I think the manner in which Ten Hag got to the 18-19 Champions League was so... Oh, that's a good team. That's a good... No, tell you what, tell you what. And then they got you've, torn you've apart a, by playing very, Group 1 English very, football. You've raised yeah. a very good point because Leonardo Jardim, if, you know, if I if, if he just used this example, Jardim would be in the Premier League by now. So I think, yeah, Ten Hag... Ten Hag probably needed two good Champions League runs. I, I wrote about Jardim all the time. I thought he absolutely should have been the successor to interim Solskjaer. Um, but I mean, Solskjaer was the successor to interim Solskjaer. <laughs> and, and I think one, one interesting thing is Solskjaer and Ten Hag now have more or less gone. The Pochettino question is, is no longer a question for Manchester United. I think Pochettino will probably never be a Manchester United manager. And... I put up, let me put it to you this way. Do you, you know, imagine scenario. I mean, United have a really bad run of form going into the World Cup. Do you, if Manchester United lose their last three games before the World Cup, could you see Manchester United fans going, we got this run, we should have got Pochettino? Oh, yeah. I could see them uh, doing that yeah. when they lose the break. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe not the fans that I listen to, but. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that I'm like actively trying to filter off my timeline, yeah, they'll be saying that. Oh, I, I think it would be more for the, uh, the pundits who start openly questioning on, on on the podcast and on the shows where it, it starts to seem a little bit more menacing than just like, what's this guy doing? But like, is this guy built for this job? Like, that would be concerning if those questions start coming up. Because there's always I, I, the I, easy like talking dumbs. point kind of. I have yeah. more faith on the Manchester United's internal at the moment, although, I mean, 
I know this podcast has, has a lovely array of listeners. So if it does happen, if if you are listening to this podcast, and at some point this season, there is a moment where someone goes, ah, made the wrong decision, should have got a potty team. Please do let me know I was wrong. Yeah, Just tag all have, four of us at the bottom of the way, tweet. Yeah. Way too much faith in the Intorno. <laughs> But, so this actually kind of leads into a question that I wrote down uh, that I wanted to get back to. So because you've talked about kind of like communication, obviously, you know, you'll have your own relationship trying to communicate with Ten Hag and, and then trying to disseminate what he's telling you to to your readers. Um, we've seen it, you know, from the public sphere because we don't have any kind of access. So we're getting everything off of Twitter and through you and through everybody else. Um, you know, we've seen from the two most recent managers. Solshire always try to be very positive whenever speaking about the team and trying to communicate messaging to the fans. And it was always the, well, Manchester United, you know, we compete for trophies. And then you flip it on its head and Ralph Rangnick's like, this team sucks. Uh, they're not doing anything that I want. And you kind of had Jose Mourinho where it was just like, I'm talking about myself. Like I'm, I'm your savior. So what would be your prediction? I've already kind of seen in a, in a couple of his interviews where he seems like he's trying to set expectations. He's trying to say, yeah, 4-0 against Liverpool is pretty cool, but like this is preseason, guys. Like This is obviously not the expectation of what's going to happen next month when we play a game that ma- matters. And I think the same thing happened again today where he's trying to focus on the areas for improvement as opposed to saying, like, that was a nice goal. So what do you think are kind of the keys for Eric Ten Hag to um, get messaging out to fans that kind of if there is a bad result because of how – tough the schedule is to start the season how does he keep everybody in line in, in that in torno where it's like guys this is a rebuild like i've got to do what Mikel arteta did a couple years ago and like we need to fly under the radar and just put our heads down and get the work done that's, that's probably going to be one of these greatest challenges so we know that ten Hag wasn't the most captivating speaker in the netherlands it was held against him uh they they often mocked his non-amsterdam accent because he comes from the he comes from a town in the Netherlands that's quite close to the German border, uh, and we we know Tottenham Hotspur were turned off Ten Hag a little bit because his English wasn't necessarily great. Going by Ten Hag's first ever press conference, so this was before the preseason tour. His sentence structure was very Dutch, so we say. Um, mm-hmm. And while he was speaking English, the way he was composing sentences was was a little. See, I, th- I feel really mean saying this. Well, was I, I want to say rudimentary, but also I'm, I'm saying this, trying to learn Dutch, and my sentence structure is way worse than what his sentence structure is. So we know this as well. We also know that Ten Hag is, is a very much, he's a football man. He's, he's about X's and O's, he's about tactics. And he does not suffer fools. So there were loads of times in the final weeks at Ajax where people were going, what about your links to Manchester United? Goes, Why are you asking me that question? And they'll say, oh, but it's a news. I don't care about that. Let's talk about Ajax. I'm here about Ajax. Uh, and I think you've seen a sprinkle of that already when when journalists are going, Cristiano Ronaldo, who, what about him? I'm not here to talk about Cristiano Ronaldo. I'm here to talk about preseason tour. And I think Ten Hag looks to, will take that line in these press conferences. I, I'm not going to go into a, a ten, one of these early press conferences with Ten Hag and ask him questions about the collar and the Manchester United kit, for example. I'm I actually really was going to ask you about that. Are we wearing? <laughs> are we going to be wearing black shorts at home? Because that's that's not cool. <laughs> uh, I will not be asking Ten Hag questions about um, the rain in Manchester. I will very much be asking questions about how he wants Manchester United to play, 
um, how he believes, how long he'll believe certain processes to take. And then when, if he gives me a time frame, I'll come back at the end of that time frame and say, have we reached it? Uh, and then if he changes something, I'll ask him, how, does he think those things have changed? And I think that that's that will be my approach. I haven't spoken to Hag yet, but that's how I'm looking and reading these press conferences and going, you don't like questions about transfer title tassel uh, uh, and sort of softer environmental environmental not necessarily being the environment of the planet but you know, the, the 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 softer questions have you yeah. had have you had a wigan balm yet i'm not going to ask them those sorts of questions yet i am going to go x's and o's bing bang boom um one one good question i think would be quite nice to ask is if if frankie young does become a manchester united manager and they play together you know a good question would be how is frank how have you viewed frankie de young's time at barcelona um, how do you, you know, do you think it's changed as a player? That sort of stuff. And I think he'll give you a good answer there. Um, now, I don't think those answers are necessarily tabloid friendly, shall we say. Right? He's going to, he, Ten Hag speaks in paragraphs. Uh, and if you ask him, um, why do you do man marking over zonal on a corner kick? He'll probably go, well, we do do zonal, blah, 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 blah. Actually, if you look at this, 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 boom. And if you've got to fill the back page of a newspaper and you only have 200 words to do it, that's not, he's not going to give you those pithy quotes. So I think that will be a challenge for him. I think. He doesn't speak in sound bites. He doesn't, he doesn't speak in sound bites. He, he doesn't necessarily talk. I mean, even when he was an Ajax manager, he wasn't really getting dragged into questions as do you think Ajax are better than Piers how you know how do you think about Ajax's relationship with Feyenoord which are the bread and butter of British newspapers uh, I think it was really telling that in his first press conference they asked him about Pep and Klopp and he said yeah you know, these are two of the best managers out there and we would absolutely love to be on that level but we're a little bit away from that level but also understand that this is football everything ends and then the back pages were Eric Ten Hag shoots a you know shot across the bow against Liverpool and Man City. He says empires end and Manchester United are on the way. And I'm going, oh, you need to be aware of that. Um, and I think Ten Hag has to be fluid. That he has to be adaptable. And I, I know loads of us, loads of us doing our job probably have something part of our job where you're like, I don't really want to do this. This is more about public perception rather than how I do my job. Um, but you have to do it. And it's really important as a Manchester United manager, right? You, at some point before Manchester United play Liverpool, he, Eric Ten Hag will be asked, does he think Manchester United is a bigger club than Liverpool? Right? That's just 101. You, you, every United manager gets that before that game. Do you think United's a bigger team than Liverpool? Oh, Liverpool are coming up to up surpassing you in Premier League trophies. Do you think Manchester United can win a trophy before Liverpool can do that? How do you think of that rivalry? And if Ten Hag goes in there, I'm not interested in that question that will create its own sub subcategory of stories. Some United fans will like it, but oh yeah, he's actually focused on the football rather than his tilt tail. Whereas other United fans go, no, no, it's Liverpool. I need some hatred for Liverpool. Um, and, and that's how the Intorno begins to split. Jose Mourinho was very good at understanding when those questions were coming towards him and doing things to make sure 
the people that cared about that stuff got what they wanted. Uh, Sarah Shepard, who works at The Athletic, pointed out a couple of years ago, Jose Mourinho speaks at the exact cadence that's perfect for transcribing. You don't have to slow down when you're transcribing. And he deliberately slows down because he knows when someone's typing, he can look and go, OK, I'm going to give you what you need right now. And he's very good at seeing a question from a journalist, knowing where that journalist is from and going, oh, you working online? OK, here's a bit longer. Or, oh, you work for one of the red top newspapers in England. Here's your punchy headline. And I think that's gone a long way for his uh, continued success in the media sphere in England, at the very least. And I think if you look at what he's done at Roma as well, he, he's very first Roma unveiling. He, he spoke Italian in, again, a very particular cadence. And he entertained certain questions about his relationship with Inter Milan because he knows how to play that part of the game. Ten Hag needs to be able to play that part of the game. I don't think he wants to at the moment. I think by Christmas, someone will make it very clear he has to. Well, to follow up on that then, and this is maybe to satisfy my own professional curiosities, like, do you have um, any kind of insights on how United, the front office, United, the club kind of approaches with the technical staff, with the first team uh, media training and kind of (laughs) those conversations that they would be having with Ten Hag, where it's just like, we know you don't want to do this, but you do have to play ball a little bit because, uh, you know, we're trying to make sure that you're not getting killed in the papers, getting killed on podcasts and on TV. Um, So we, we, we know for a fact that, I mean, Manchester United's head of media comms, um, Karen Schobel, she retired last season. Uh, there was a lovely little unveiling in the final press conference of last season uh, Ralph Rangnick, Darren Fletcher uh, and Harry Maguire gave her a lovely plaque um, and she had been there for, for several years uh, and it was very much the she would accompany the manager into press conferences and, and say okay who's first and, and would often give out the order of the people who ask the questions first and after a certain amount of time she'd get to know your face uh, and then you'd get a, a, essentially an unofficial slot in the hierarchy um, which is part of the course for, for every Premier League club. Everyone's got their own person like that. Uh, and I think there's going to be someone new for Manchester United, so that might shake things up. Um, so the how the press conference will work and who will introduce you to, to Ten Hag and who gets the first question to Ten Hag, that will change this season because there's just a new person there. Um, I think in terms of media training, I think it very often happens after the fact. So you, there might be a week one day where, where Ten Hag comes out and he's accompanied by Rafa Alvaran and then in the, or for a Champions League game. And then on the Saturday or, or the Friday You're before a Premier League game. Yeah, sorry. <clears throat> ouch, ouch. Uh, and then, and then on, on, the, on the Friday before for the weekend game, Ten Hag will come out uh, again. Or, and there might be a, a player interview on the website, let's say, you know, with Anthony Marshall. And then maybe across those four interviews, two or three lines come up over and over again. And then you go, ah, someone has very clearly told Manchester United that the focus this week is on X subject. And you should probably try and talk about X subject if you ask about X subject. So if you look at, we've had interviews with Fred, Harry Maguire, Luke Shaw, Marcus Rashford. Those are interplayers I've read over this preseason, and they have all mentioned how focused Ten Hag is on the training session, right? They've all said he's he's really meticulous and it's quite hard, but and there's a lot to learn, but we're getting used to it. And maybe, yeah, maybe I'm I'm being 
too much of a detective. Maybe all four people have all come to that conclusion by themselves. Or perhaps before the tour, Manchester United players have had a conversation. Oh, what are you feeling? You know, you're probably going to get asked this. How are you feeling about that? Well, you should probably mention this, which is the way of the world nowadays. I think there was a Floyd Lowe Hughes is covering the women's Euros at the moment. As she mentioned that every single England women's player has said, uh, if you ask them, do you think England can win the Euros? Every single one of them will give you a line that is a variant of, we just want to do our families proud. So, yeah, I think it, I think in terms of media briefing and whatnot, you can learn what the briefing was after the fact. I'd say the press conferences are going to be very different this season because one, new manager, two, new person who's going to be introducing those press conferences. Uh, and I think we will probably see changes and adaptations in real time. Uh, as as we go from a week to week basis, uh, I, I think Ten Hag might. I will be really surprised if Ten Hag does Friday press conferences in anything other than a tracksuit. And if he does, if he cut, if he turns up wearing anything other than a tracksuit, I will probably go Ten Hag's not in a tracksuit. Uh, and if he doesn't, if he does it in something outside the tracksuit, I'll go. That's interesting. So, and you'll I'll, read into it. I'll, I'll probably read into it. I'll probably also read into what time those uh, press conferences will happen. So we know that uh, early on in his time as a Manchester United manager, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer did the Friday press conferences in the morning. And then he slowly pushed it back towards one o'clock because he does the school run uh, in, on Friday mornings. Uh, and he talks to his children in Norwegian. And he said, yeah, he, he, he made it quite known that when he comes into those press conferences, his brain is still thinking of things in Norwegian. We also know that if you are in a press conference with Pep Guardiola, you, you kind of don't want to be the first two questions because Pep Guardiola's brain is not in the press conference room. He's still thinking about training. You don't also you also don't want to be the last question either because then his brain is already going, oh, last question. And he's going to stop thinking about things and he's thinking about training the next time. You want to be in that middle section there. Um, and this is this is part of the course for every football manager. I, 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 I treat managerial press conferences like poker. Um, everyone's got their own unique tell. Everyone's got their own unique play style. You can get a football manager on tilt and to play on tilt. Um, and, and when Jose Mourinho is on tilt, it is quite the sight. Um, and when Ralph Rangnick was on tilt last season, it was remarkable. I had to stop wearing glasses uh, in those press conferences because I often you know, have my glasses on my forehead. And every now and again, Ragnick would say something. I raise my eyebrows and my glasses just fall down my head. I don't know. That's really obvious. That's really obvious that he's given the game away here. Um, he's not in the Premier League anymore, but I'll say the happiest football manager in the world in the Premier League after a win was Sean Dyche. To to circle back on something, like I mean, frankly, it's it's been almost fifty minutes. Astonishingly, the elephant in the room has not come up. Of like, we've talked about all the challenges Ten Hag has. You said before when we were talking about the, the two matches they've played, it's it's been really great to see them and quote playing modern football. The question is when they come to play to play Brighton. Given the every player that is under contract at United right now, uh-huh. and even factoring in maybe some that might become under contract. Will they be able to play like this? I'm going to respond to that question with another question. Are you asking me to talk about Cristiano Ronaldo? That's your interpretation. <laughs> uh, Is this a press I, conference? What's going on? 
Would that not be the the most challenging part of what Eric Ten Hag's job is going to be? Cristiano Ronaldo, or or making that team play modern football in the Premier League? Both. How do they both? How what what what's the Venn diagram there? Uh, I'd say there is. I'm, uh, because we're in podcast form and you can't see what I'm doing, I'm going to give the boys <laughs> a show of how my fingers think that works, and, and then just not answer that. No, I'm jo- I'm joking. I joke. I think the the modern style of football question is most easily answered by the transfer activity at Manchester United. So. A time of writing, Lissandra Martinez has, has been agreed and looks like he's going to get his medical on Wednesday. Christian Eriksen has just been agreed on the club website. Uh, Tyro Malashi has been agreed on, and that's on the club website. And Frankie de Jong, the money has been agreed and now it's up to personal terms and a verbal agreement there. That is a backup left back who can probably be starting left back in 18 months. Uh, a centre back who plays in the preferred position of your club captain. and a 31-year-old midfielder who isn't necessarily defensively minded and a... Also with a giant elephant in the room there. Yeah, who, who was legally dead for, for a short spell in, in 2021. And, and we've got a, a incredibly unique defensive box-to-box midfielder. And that's how I describe Frankie Dion. He's not a six... He's, he's a defensive-minded box-to-box midfielder, a complete cheat code if you build around him, but he hasn't been built around since he left Ten Hag in 2019. Ten Hag's bought a bunch of players that I'd say don't necessarily address the most urgent areas of need in terms of positions at Manchester United. I think he's gone about buying those because he wants to raise the tactical floor of that team. Um one of the more consistent things you, you get when you watch Manchester United play last season, the season before that, was there was a moment where Harry Maguire would just go, keep the fucking ball. Just keep the fucking ball. Um, which was a huge problem for United. It's always been a huge problem. They just, they can play very fast. And when Fernandez's on the pitch, they play very fast. And when Pogba's on the pitch, he wants to play very fast too. But there's no one who can just go, we're going to do 10 passes very slowly to take the sting out of the opposition's tail. And I think all of these signings are Ten Hag trying to do that. I think he just he just wants he's just looked at that spine of the team and gone, that needs reworking. And even if I have to spend loads of money on players that aren't necessarily we can survive without this season, uh, I think he's like we're gonna have to build it my way. So that's why I think he's probably gonna get that modern football to happen earlier against that Brighton game because we are. If everyone goes through the door and is a United player in the way that he's looking like, you, you, the United spine will be De Gea, Martinez, De Jong, Fernandez, a striker. Whereas last season it was De Gea, Maguire. I don't even, I feel McFred, Bruno Fernandez. A striker, like it's, it's a very different spine of a team, and I think that is more conductive to to playing modern football. Now, whether or not a striker is Ronaldo and a striker can be conductive to, to modern football is, is the wider question. Uh, I am very heartened by what's going on with Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford on those wings. 
And I think that probably makes Cristiano Ronaldo up front a more viable prospect than it would have been if it was Mauricio Pochettino as the manager, for example. All right, so you brought his name up, and this was a uh, <laughs> important part of our off-mic conversations, I'd say, for the Carl Anka Pod 1. How are you feeling about Jaden Sancho after, you know, just just over a year of being a United player? We oh, know man. he had kind of a, a rocky start, but we saw just in glimpses that obviously this guy's a baller. And then, like, when you finally took a leash off of Jaden Sancho, he's an incredible footballer that we got on a cut deal. Um, and he seems like he's, you know, playing all right so far. The dream the of 2020 of the- is still alive. Yeah, 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 and and he's he's doing it on the right. He's doing it on the right hand side as well, which is what I really wanted. I I did a piece before the season ended about how Jaden Sancho played most of the last 20, 21, 22 on the left rather than the right, and how that was quite disappointing. Uh, where and I think as we were going into this summer. You know, if, if you if you looked at United and Torino, I think there were quite a few Manchester United fans that were essentially going, Jaden Sancho is going to start on the left-hand side next season, and Marcus Rashford is in the wind. Some United fans were saying, sell him. Some United fans saying, he, he, he just is not as good as Sancho. Um, and I think those two gentlemen can absolutely coexist as, as wide players. I think that's always been the plan. That was always the plan from Solskjaer. Uh, and... Paulie did a tweet. I think it was Paulie did a tweet of just Dallow's not even a great overlapping right back, but look how much better Sancho is on either flank when there is a right back that understands I should overlap for this human being. And that's it, right? I, I just. Uh, there I was think, a difference last year when he played with Shaw versus Tellis. Oh my goodness. A chasm of ability and quality. Uh, I just, <laughs> I cannot, I cannot get over this moment. Again, it was in the Watford game. And I was, I swore so profusely during that game. I was really, I was really, I was really in a bad way. I think. Was this the loss or the, or the nil-nil? This is the nil-nil. And Sancho doesn't openly gesture for overlaps. He he can be quite, he has this little move where he will, he will teach you like get one-on-one with, with the fullback and he will put his foot on the ball and then he'll drag it back once. And that's a, I'm sucking you into me. And they'll do it twice. And that, the second one is very much fullback move, like full, like fullback move. And then I'm about to, I'm about to just break this human being because it's it's the whole fix the fullback, have them flat footed, have them turn as the fullback overlaps, and then he just goes the other way. And he does it all the time at Dortmund. It's it, one of his favorite things. Um, and it was like to the point where Bundesliga watchers said if he drops his right hand, he's about to dribble. But you couldn't stop it because he just did it all the time because the guy behind him was Hakimi. And boy, that boy loves overlap. Woo-hoo. And I remember watching this Watford game and Sancho did it. He like he began to put his foot on the ball and he pulled it back once. And he did this little gesture with his right hand where he swept it white. He swept it out. And if you, it was sort of a, tell, you know, tell us, I need you to go behind me. Tell us, just stood there. And then he does it again. And tell us, sort of looks left and right and goes oh okay and then just very slowly ambly jogs no no intensity to the overlapping run and then you can see Sanchez like oh fine he does like a fake shimmy passes it to Telus and Telus is just oh so they're like this this just can't run this cannot run it's ah oh. one big reason why uh those final weeks of last season were so bad was because Alex, Alex Telus 
was essentially playing by default and he was he's an individual he's an individualist he 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 offered very little in terms of team build up and he was defensively very poor not only in terms of defending the man but also defending the space um, the the press box at Amex Stadium where where Brighton play is quite close to to the to the away dugout so i remember watching the the first half and i could see the back of cavani's head and i went wow i can it's really shiny like Cavani's got it was one of those sort of I know people say Cavani's got a lovely head of hair and I but it was I was so close to it this is just superb hair and there was a bit just before I can't even remember which goal it was because I tried to just mind wipe it but just very clearly Trossard runs down and tries to cut inside and just has has Tilly some on toast Lindelof helps out clears it and Ragnar gets up and goes to Tilly do not let him cut inside. All he's going to do to you today is try and cut inside. And he does the cut inside motion with his finger of just no cut inside. Just every time, show him why. Feliz nods, gives him a thumbs up. 30 seconds later, Trussell cuts inside goal. Oh, it's just dead. Oh, what's... oh this is bad. So, uh, Manassia, I know you're only five foot six, but you are at least the second best left back at the club now. It definitely seems, you know, like that's going to be the plan. Uh, just seeing Alex Tellez play as a center back in preseason game. That was fun. Well, I, I think that was making up the numbers. Of, hmm. Let's give you 45 minutes. And also because we only have three center backs on the, in yeah. the squad today. But, but I mean, so I think what's interesting is obviously we're all Manchester United fans and we will probably have our own imagined shopping list for, for what Manchester United need this summer and my shopping list was buy a number six buy another number six then go off and buy a right back and a center forward because i wanted i wanted sancho on the right hand side i say you don't need to buy anthony or, or ziesh or or doing dembele and whatnot because you've already got your right wing solution you just need to give him a to an overlapping fullback dallo is i can't make heads or tails of him he is uniquely I don't want to say raw, but he's a blank slate. He's six out of ten and everything, and he hasn't shown expertise in anything. And I think Ten Hag could probably look at Dallow and go, "Amazing! I can just build a fullback from you." Or he could also look at Dallow and go, "No, I haven't got enough time. I'm going to buy someone else better." And I think Wan Bissaka's Manchester United future is limited. I'm not saying he's going on loan or whatever, but I think the amount of games where Wan Bissaka is useful is is not as high. Uh, as it would have been in, in 2019. So a right back is useful not only for the back line, but probably useful for, for Jaden Sancho if you want to put Jack Sancho on the right hand side. And I think you should put Sancho on the right hand side because leaving on the right left it creates complications that you don't need. There, The thing is, so your shopping list was a number six, another number six. Mine was just, mine was basically a defensive midfielder, a Paul Pogba replacement, and then a backup, someone that can, be the number six if you need him to be for a few games, but also the backup to your Paul Pogba replacement because yeah. as like what we're seeing now with Ten August, as you said, he's bringing in all these guys to form this bond. It's like okay, you clearly have an even if they're not the positions that we would say you need. Yep. He has this idea of how he wants to use them, and my concern is just oh okay, cool. What happens if one of them gets hurt? Then we're right back to, can you play this football with the players that we currently have is a question. But I think there's also the issue of, can they get the ball to the right 
so I think United have this big passing to the right issue, and everybody's always said it's it's because they don't have a right winger, and we've we've I've seen it like they had matches where even before Sancho came and it was like, well, that's because Juan Basaka is terrible going forward and we don't have an attacking right back. And then it was like the next game Diogo Dalot played and it was like, we, that's a better attacking right back. And we're still not passing it to him. And there Mm -hmm. was a game last year where Sancho came on at halftime and he played on the left wing. And I, I think it was, he played about 20 minutes there until Rashford came on and then Sancho moved over to the right. And I think he had like 16 touches in those 20 minutes and everything else was the same. Yep. Over the next 25 minutes, and he had four touches. Yep. And it was matches, just like, we, so so I think like, like when you say like getting that right back, it's like just grab all these midfielders and someone <laughs> that could pass the ball to the left. Like that's what we're missing. We have all these guys, whether it was it was Pogba or Lindelof is pretty good at it. Maguire can kind of do who can make that sweeping diagonal ball to the left side. We don't mm-hmm. have anybody who can do it to the right. Like Matic was left footed, but he didn't have that. Fred yeah, like yeah. tries to do it, but he can't do it. This is one of the Wayne Rooney things that we never replaced, by the way. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> that, it's, that long it's, ball to the right hand side. I mean, the Wayne Rooney long ball was, I didn't like it because it looped too much. It was, it was a really high up and it just, and the back four, back four just went, Oh, I mean, the ball was in the air for so long. We can just reset our back four entirely. Oh, that's it the Tomine long ball. Yeah, yeah, McTominay does the same thing, and it's 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 a it's a Rooney hangover, and it's the thing of when you hit that pass, it's got to be angled, and this is one this is one reason why Edison's goal kicks are so good because it's not the fact that it's direct, but he hits it so quickly and so low, um, and it's also why Matic was so important, not just for Manchester United but also for the Chelsea team on the Conte. His left footedness allowed them to hit so many passing elves to the right, which got the ball to Pedro. Manchester United play softball soccer. They've, they've played softball soccer for a long time. If you look at the the, the passing sequences, Wan-Bissaka is, is just very clearly almost avoided in build-up. Uh, I think it was quite interesting how quickly Rafael Varane figured out, I should not give you the ball when they're trying to attack in games. I think it took maybe three games at the start of the season where Varane was giving it to Wan-Bissaka. Maybe not. Let me just progress this a little bit further. I think that's partially also who was next to him. Yeah, he yeah, had no uh, help. Yeah, uh, I think I think next to him. I think that happened. I mean, I mean, if, let's let's be really honest. If we if we don't count Jaden Sancho as a right winger, because he played the majority of the games last season as a left winger, who has been United's most consistent force in the right wing? They didn't have a consistent force at all last season. So so we're talking we're talking so so Sancho question mark question mark last season season before that it's. You've got Daniel James and a, and someone who's supposed to be a striker, so no right winger. Daniel James wants to play on the left. Season before that, Dan, Dan, Daniel James. Uh, season before that, Ashley Young was playing right back. He was playing right back. He played. Was playing right back. So, so it was Lingard ish with Lukaku sometimes yeah. as well. Season before that, they brought in Alexis Sanchez. Sanchez turned up and went, "I'm not playing right sided." I'm not going to left. So the first half of the season, it was Mata. The most consistent one has been Juan Mata. Yeah. And you you can keep going back. And so we're talking the most consistent right wingers in the United in the last decade have been Juan Mata, Ashley Young. Yeah. Right. Because we just replaced Mata with uh, Christian Eriksen. So there you go. There you go. I think, oh, actually, I think Christian Eriksen will probably be playing in the pivot. 
I just, so that's all right. So that was going to be a question: is what does Christian Eriksen bring to this team? Like, how is he going to be used? What's the what's the point? I I I am a, I I love talking to Suede because he he's very good at, at calming me down when I start pranging out. I spend he mentioned, like every Thursday ninety minutes of my morning is just he's just is working just, bug off. I'm talking to Suede. He's just he's just really good at calming you down when you're getting angry about stuff. Yes. And he he said if you're a United fan and you're not quite understanding what's going on, you might want to look at this season as a bit like Sarri's first season at Chelsea. Um. And if you think about how Chelsea played before Sarri turned up to what happened when he brings in. Jorginho and Kovacic and how the team I mean even to this day Chelsea rely on those two people in midfield I think that's that's what we're going to get we're going to get a version of Jorginho is our Jorginho is probably going to be Christian Eriksen now and and your press resilient press resistant dribbler is Frankie de Jong I think Eriksen can also work as a backup for for Bruno Fernandes as a number 10 or also can play as as on the left-hand side or the right-hand side to be a passing regulator when I want to break down a low block. But I think Ericsson, I just I just got this weird sense that Ericsson's going to play way more games next to Frankie de Jong at the base of midfield. I'm saying next to Frankie de Jong, like de Jong's already been confirmed. But I think Ericsson will be a new member of that spine and he's going to play a lot deeper than, than the number 10 position. My concern is that he's going to play too much in that he's, he's 30 years old, mm-hmm. going to be 31. There's mm-hmm. the obvious elephant in the room yep there's the fact that um we don't know how he'll hold up in a twice a week schedule of it's i don't think Erickson's gonna play twice a week i I think you're not looking at just the europa league because the front no no i think i think so bloated and then he's gonna go to the world cup in november where he's gonna play almost all the minutes for denmark Mm -hmm. that do you run the risk of burning him out where I think he starts out very well for United and like whatever the plan is, it turns into one of those situations where like Erickson's playing very well and how can you drop him? And then suddenly he's played a lot more minutes than you expect or that you planned on. And in January and February, he's wearing down and, and feeling it. And, and suddenly you look around and go, Erickson has one goal, one assist in the last nine games. So something that I found quite interesting after the Liverpool victory was Ten Hag mentioned the World Cup. In, so this was in regards to Eric Bai, and he said Eric Bai hadn't given me a headache. He's a very interesting player. We've got a lot of games, and we've also got the World Cup. And you have to think about that. Ivory Coast didn't qualify for the World Cup, and, and right now Bai is probably the. If you have to sell one of your centre backs at United, Bai is probably the one that gets you the most money because Tuanzebi has had, had a really bad season last season. Phil Jones is basically TBC on how good he is anymore. Um, I know he's probably good enough to play in the Premier League. I don't know how high in the table he is. That's quite a few United players. Um, so if you want to sell someone and you want to make more than 10 million, you probably sell by. But the way Ten Hag responded about that made me go, are you thinking about using by as your essentially fresh legs all through November and in January when everyone else is knackered? Because same thing you said right there, Rafael Varane, right? Varane's going to be playing every single minute for that France team, I'm assuming. He's going to, Ian, uh, you know, he, he missed 17 games last season. I don't really think Varane's probably going to... I don't see him playing Europa League group games. So in those games before the World Cup and just after the World Cup, when Varane's going, nah, nah, not for me. Does Ten Hag just go, all right, bye, you're fresh, on you go. And I think we might get that with a couple of members of the squad. I think... I think Scott McTominay becomes more viable as a member of a, of a midfield setup 
during that World Cup, you know, pre-World Cup session, post-World Cup hangover. We know Fred plays ahead of Fabinho for Brazil, but I think Fred will become more of a starter plug in those moments where, you know, if Chris Eriksen gets to 55 minutes and he goes, ah, maybe not for me. I mean, you want someone to run around and offer some legs and energy and bite in midfield. You, you could do a lot worse than Fred. And I think that's something we need to constantly be playing about because it's not just that Manchester United are playing a lot of games before the World Cup. It's not just it's 16 games where you normally play 12. It's also the breakdown of it, right? Because you're Manchester United. That Liverpool game, Manchester United got drawn against Liverpool in August and there was no way in hell that game was going to be played on a weekend because it's Manchester United v Liverpool that's immediate getting shifted to a Monday which causes reverberations for all the other games in that month and, and I think Ten Hag is probably looking at Calum he's probably being aware of that I think he's probably got a version of the fixture list that has the Europa League games in there already regardless of the opponents and he's probably going okay well, I'm not going to play certain players alright I mean, Colin I'll ask you this right now um, Manchester United have to play 16 league games, at least one League Cup fixture, and six Europa League group games before the World Cup. In everyone breaks up from the World Cup in November. I want you to pick three names that will not play in the Europa League group stages. Cristiano Ronaldo. Mm-hmm. Um, Should play. That's, that's for multiple reasons. Uh, David De Gea. Uh-huh. Three guys you can you can look at and go like yeah you're probably not going to play Europa League group stages. Come on, Colin. There's an obvious one that you're missing. Oh, give it to me. He wears number eight. Oh, okay. Bruno Fernandez. Okay, okay. All right, now Paulie, pick three players to 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 go into that eleven without. So there's no Ronaldo, there's that no De Gea, and there's no Bruno Fernandez. Who plays in the squad? Who plays in the Europa League group games instead of them? So Ilonga is going to be in there. Mm-hmm. Van de Beek will be in there. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're getting midfielders, depending on how he uses Ericsson and uh, how he uses Martinez, um, might dictate the midfield. So some of McTominay or Fred will be in there. Lindelof will be in there. See, see, and, and that's the thing. And so I think I think squad it is too easy. But suddenly to you're like suddenly you're looking at a United squad that looks very familiar, and it's like, well, can Ten Hag play that kind of football with them? Well, well, the thing is, well, unless we forget, Colin just mentioned De Gea. Yeah. Is, is it Tom Eaton or is it Henderson? Well, Henderson's gone. It's Tom, Henderson. yeah, Henderson. it's Tom Eaton. But it's also the thing of you're, you're describing play. You're describing play in the Europa League group stages, and I'm going to be super mean here. Manchester United should be top in the Europa League group. Manchester United should be looking for the Europa League quarterfinals, and then we can talk about which is dropped down from the Champions League. But... I would expect the spine of Manchester United from 1920, let alone the spine from last season, <coughs> to, to to top their Europa League group. I don't think Luke Shaw's going to play Europa League group stage matches. Right. And and Delo- if Delote's the first choice right back, he won't either. But but I also think Tyrell and Aaron are more than good enough to be fullbacks in Europa League group stage matches. Yes. So the, so my question is <laughs> the pausing your yes. No, no. I, what you said, what you said, ah, there 100% it is again. said. It makes 100%. The spine of the 1920 team should 100% be good enough to get through. Mm-hmm. But if you get a bad result in one of those first two games, which yep. happens, and it happens Wait, to first two games is in Europa League. Yeah. Okay. So like all of a sudden it's like they're playing minnows, but all but after two games they're sitting on three points mm-hmm. or 
four points after after three games or whatever, which happened to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and it happened to Jose Mourinho. And now you have a home match, so it's not like you have to travel. Does suddenly he go, oh, we need to win this match? And do some of those players, the Bruno Fernandes, uh, maybe a Ronaldo, come into the team? Like Mourinho played like a very strong team in the matches at Old Trafford. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that might happen as well. well you know, that there are there are six Europa League group games, and I could see I could, I could see, see Bruno Fernandes. I could see Bruno Fernandes playing the home matches. I can see yeah. Marcus Rashford playing the home matches. I could see Harry Maguire playing the home matches, even I, if necessarily I those playing five of them. Even if even if Manchester United don't necessarily need those players, but I think that's I think those the makeup of the Europa League games, the makeup of the League Cup games will have an effect on players like Eric Bailly, on players like Tyro Malasia, on players like Scott McTominay and Fred, on Donny van der Beek, on Anthony Alanga. Those will be the games that you hope first of August or first of September, Ten Hag is going. These six games, they're yours. But if if things go wrong and you bring in a Bruno Fernandez and that suddenly that's well, I, would, I, would ima- right I would I would I would imagine Ten Hag is part of that speech of going these six games are yours they're not going to go wrong because I've been I just spent the last six weeks with you teaching you how to do X you know I I would imagine you Ten Hag is walking up to Wan Bissaka going these six games in the Europa League are yours this is how you invert properly oh by the way do you understand you need to talk to the right centre back. And that's how you stop having the cross come in and then the other guys beat you to it, a back post. Um, we know Ten Hag's a tracksuit manager. It's not. It, we're not just going to run it back with the same version of Wan-Bissaka. And if we do run it back with the same version of Wan-Bissaka, then we can definitively go, why did Wan-Bissaka not learn? Right. In a way that I, we, I don't think we've been able to say since the early part of last season. I'm not, I'm not going to say Solskjaer didn't try and teach these players things or McKenna and McCarrick didn't try and teach these people things to, to United players. And we, and I, you know, if, if, if I did sort of a blind CV test and covered up the manager and, and the coaches on that training ground and went at McKenna and Solskjaer and whatnot and showed you what Ten Hag was doing, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference because we know, you know, McKenna is highly rated as a, as a coach, but also McKenna doesn't necessarily have the same heft that Ten Hag, Van der Graag, or, or even McLaren has. And I think that's the, the soft bit about coaching as well. Sometimes you need someone with the right face to go do this thing. Because it makes you do it with a certain intensity and a certain freshness in a way that other people didn't, right? We, Ralph Rangnick knows how to play modern football. No one was going to listen to him because he hadn't managed in ages. Chris Armas apparently is a good coach. I... Nobody thinks that. Not even uh, here where he came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, 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 Chris Armas thinks he's a good coach. I, I have never ever been play, paid money to play football. If I did a training session with Chris Armas, I think I'd probably at some point go, "Shut up, Chris." <laughs> would he? Would he hear you though? Because he has his headphones in. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still furious about that. I can't believe uh, it. Honestly, a man was giving free tactical information that was fed into a man's AirPods. Free. He was doing it for free. To, to be oh. fair, in the, at the bar, oh at the God. pub where I watched the the matches, we were always talking about. We were like, "What is going on in that?" We settled on he was probably just listening to Dave Matthews' band, um, <laughs> and to find out what was happening. <laughs> I was flabbergasted. The 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 one thing that like is, and I'm gonna quote Eric Ten Hag here from some interview that Suede sent me when he was at Ajax is, "A coach can't do magic." 
And there is, you can teach Aaron Wan-Bissaka how to invert and say, okay, when ball goes here, you're going to tuck inside. You are going to stand here. Uh, you're yep. going to be ready. If the ball comes to you, these are going to be your options. Your first option is to look here. Your second option is to look there. You can't really help that, like, you got lead in your right boot and, like, that first <laughs> touch is going to fly off your foot. Yeah. Yeah, you can't do that. But and so, so there, and there's several players in the team that are like that, where it's like, if you get them to stand in the right spot, yes, it'll get better, and it, and that's a huge thing. But they still, if they can't do the technical things that your system requires them to do, it's going to make everybody else worse. Of course, and that's that's why that's why we're seeing the activity in the transfer market, right? We, Fred and Scott McTominay cannot do what Frankie De Jong can do. Right, they they are not ball. They are not they are not press with press with most, most people can't do what Frankie. No, De yeah, can absolutely. Do. There's a lot, there are, there are, there's a lot of players that can do. Pogba can't do the thing that Frankie De Jong can do. He's Frankie De Jong's an absolute cheat code. And I look at Frankie De Jong and go, is that what football can look like for the rest of the 2020s and 2030s? But and it's very clear that Ten Hag has looked at certain positions and gone, no, that person I can coach them, but they ain't got it. So I'm gonna get someone else in. Hi, Tyrell Malasia. How you doing? <laughs> is a good example of that. Uh, like coach can't do magic. And, and the great thing about the good thing, or the, the reason why Manchester United are supposed to be one of the better teams in the world, is they've got the money to keep fixing things if they if the guy's just not good enough. And I think the way Ten Hag is putting money in those things, he's very clearly gone, nah, the left back has to be able to do this. And Shaw can do that, but if Shaw isn't able to do that, then I need someone better than... Alex Feliz. And I think he's looked at the defensive situation and gone, eh, Harry Maguire's ball carrying is quite useful, but I need deep passing. And Lindelof's long pass isn't quite what I want. Here comes in the Sandro Martins. And I think he's also looked at Bruno Fernandes and also the passing situation in deep or central midfield. And gone, no, I need someone who can make five-yard passes, really nice, intricate five-yard passes. Let's bring in Christian Eriksen. I think that's what you're seeing. And if, if Manchester United go out and get another right back, that tells you what he thinks about Aaron Wan-Bissaka, surely. And I think if you... I think something that's also been of interest to me is that United aren't really being linked to another centre-forward. You know? They, they've been linked well, a lot more. They're so steadfast about that they have two. I know, I know. But I think it's really interesting that United have been linked more to right-sided players than they have been to any centre-forward, right? There's been a lot more smoke to Anthony joining from Ajax than there has been to Victor Oshiman, Tammy Abraham, Ikite, Samaka. Because I think Ten Hag probably goes, I can run with Ronaldo or I can run with a with a Martial or I can run with a with a Rashford if I get my wide player. And then we can do a system that way. The 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 transfer window isn't just football team wants to buy player, but it's also a football manager is telling you what he thinks of his current squad. And I think what we're seeing now is one, a brand new spine is coming into Manchester United, and two, he's got faith in in certain attacking players in a way that United fans probably didn't in May. Um, Polly, Nathan, do either of you have any more uh, tactical questions for Carl? Because I, I know we're coming up on an hour and a half now, and I, I did have a you know kind of fun question idea to end the podcast on if we're ready to give move me, on to that but i didn't want to just more. Like end this conversation okay go for it i mean I, i've got one more like sort of semi vibe and tactical question sure and it's related sure. to a text message exchange that us three had this morning 
Um, so last year, Polly and I bitched and complained a lot when they sent Jimmy Garner back out on loan. Mm-hmm. Um, already, because it's two preseason games, people are uh, aggressively online. Uh, a couple other youngsters are, are impressing. Uh, you had a tweet this morning about it as well, about Zidane. Um, young Zidane, not old Zidane. Um, <laughs> he won't come up until after Tenok has a couple bad games. Um, how much of, especially with a World Cup looming, if there's the opportunity where maybe transfers don't go exactly how Ten Hag wants or, you know, they stay smart and they do what they did with Sancho where they're like, you know what, sorry, you're asking for too much. We're actually going to back out of this deal. Um, how many of these guys do you think have the potential to get bled into that first team squad this year and actually play like maybe not significant minutes, but we have that next Ilanga who comes in and actually plays double digit games, probably records over 500, 600 minutes or something. And, and plays like minutes that mean something, not like, Oh, he got subbed in for five minutes against Huddersfield at the end of the season. I think this is, this is the really tricky one because we, we know Tanag is a, there's a, I think there's a very good report in the BBC saying Ten Hag is interested in player 18 and player 19 of your squad. And he, he, doesn't necessarily buy a player if he thinks it will block a pathway for an academy player. So, Zidanek, Bell, Charlie Savage impressed me in preseason. Zidanek, Bell, really nice, uh, close control in tight areas. Charlie Savage, I had no idea his passing range was that good. Uh, one, absolute roadrunner. Like, he's got, he runs around like he's got two large tanks of oxygen to him, so he's got stamina for days. And I really, I'm, I'm quite impressed by his passing range already. Um, that the, these are players I have in earmarked in the Europa League away game section, you know, Colin, in, in the sort of Christian Eriksen isn't going to travel to Azerbaijan today, but we'll, we'll take Zidane and Charlie Savage in there. And if it was season two of Ten Hag at Manchester United, I think there'd be more time for these players. But the fact that season one and Ten Hag probably has to get this first team sorted out. I think that probably reduces that. I'd say right now we're looking at the United Academy. I'm quite surprised how little of Hannibal Medjury we've seen. Uh, I, I'm, I like him. I also really, really, really need him to get a fixed position right quite right now because I'm getting quite annoyed. Is he a 10? Is he a winger? Is he a central midfielder like the Tunisian FA thinks he is? So I think Hannibal probably needs a loan deal. Uh, I, I'm also quite impressed by Ethan Galbraith. I've seen him play a number of games on the 23 level. And to my mind, him in possession, at well, I've, so I've watched him and Jimmy Garner play in the same team. And I thought, well, no, it's not Garner. I think it's Galbraith who will be the most likely one to, to, to make the first team. And then I saw James Garner make it, it alone deal in the championship and, and, and Galbraith go in, into League One, which I thought was far too low for, for his technical ability. So I'd like to see more of Galbraith. I think Galbraith probably absolutely, probably absolutely. I want to see him in a top half championship club. I want to see him in a team that dominates possession and we can probably see his pathway through. So, yeah, if you're a youth player at United right now, I think between now and the start of the World Cup, you've probably got two Europa League games, senior Europa League games to, to make a merit and, and those training sessions. So the loan system will be a big thing. I'll also be interested to see what United do with the loan system because they don't have a... They're terrible. It's it's very ad hoc, and it's ad hoc in a way that is 
they're getting their act together in a way that is good but also I'm, you know, I, remember, I remember talking to someone from the academy I went oh you know do you have favoured teams that you, you send players on loan to and I went, no it's more as and when who, who's the best situation for a player I went, oh, okay cool and so what do you consider for that and I got the sense that what they consider is is there someone at the loan club that has a good relationship with United already rather than do you consider the playing tactics do you consider um do they play in a possession style or whatnot? Because also, I think those things were a bit hard to figure out when the Manchester United manager was in flux. So I think if Ten Hag comes in and goes, right, academy players, I want you to go to teams that play in this formation and do this sort of thing, off you go. I think that would be quite interesting too. So in, in terms of young players, yeah, I'm, I'm more interested in the loan market than I am in, in the 25 minutes you get in the Europa League. I just hope that like two of those guys can make it because if two out of the four that you mentioned make it or two out of the four between Garner, Galbraith, Savage and Zidane make it like that's pretty good. And that's an area of the pitch that is very weak. You have to think like someone can there's opportunity there for somebody and they can step in. Um, I I watched Hannibal play against. Cities on the 23s, and it was one of those games where cities on the 23s are just just so much better. And a lot of the under 23 teams have realised that if you can kick Hannibal and get him too yeah, hot headed, he, he gets off his game, and there's, you know don't really have as much of an attacking threat. But what was interesting was even though he was in the 10 position, he began to pick the ball up in deeper areas and began to play almost like a 4-3-3 on the left. And I went, Are you not trying to turn you into a Pogba successor? Hang on. Uh, and I thought, I you know. Maybe this is my complete lack of faith in Glazonomics, by the way. United are going to let Pogba go in the free and then just put Hannibal in there instead. Uh, Perfect segue to my last question. <laughs> how, on pitch only, strictly on pitch, how much is this team going to miss Paul Pogba? Uh, not too much if Frankie comes in. I think, I think if, if Frankie comes in, they will not miss Paul Pogba too much strictly on pitch. In terms of off the pitch, they're not going to miss him at all off the pitch. Well, at least the fans. I think they. I think they yeah, might. The, I mean, I mean, no, the fan in Torino, they won't. But in yeah, terms no, the, of, so the in Torino, the leadership, they might miss. Yeah, they might miss. I mean, because Pogba's got a very strange, soft in, internal leadership. I think one of the big things we've always got wrong about Paul Pogba was we always thought he was sort of some tub thumping, bloodied. Running the trenches behind me, whereas Paul Pogba, I mean, the greatest example of who Paul Pogba is was when he was injured at international duty and just stood outside the dressing room. And then all the French players were walking past. Him, hey, it's Pogba. How you doing, Pogba? Pogba is the cool. Pogba is the cool kid who goes to university before all you kids go to university. And you're like, wow, look at you found like Pogba's the dude who shows you really cool records. And like Pogba's parents are out. So he's you, we're playing music in Pogba's band and drinking beer. That's Pogba's leadership thing, and and Pogba's the Pogba's the dude at college who speaks more than one language, and and has a girlfriend from South America, and shows you fella Kuti. You know, I I want Pogba's life, and Pogba's like, ah, you don't need to be like me, man. Just like be yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's he's that sort of a main thing. I mean, I mean, if if you look at the Manchester United dressing room, Paul Pogba was one of the very few people that Cristiano Ronaldo respected. Or like could calm down Cristiano Ronaldo when Ronaldo was in the mood, and vice versa. Ronaldo also calmed down Pogba two or three times. So we, apparently there was a, a disagreement between Ronaldo and Harry Maguire once, and uh, and Ronaldo was getting a bit into Maguire, and Pogba went, "Hey, leave him alone. He's our captain." 
and went to Maguire, look, you're an £18 million football player, play like it. And Maguire's sort of like, cheers. We also know that Paul Popper was essentially the translator for Edison Cavani throughout his entire time there, because Cavani, Cavani speaks Italian and Spanish, which are two languages that Popper speaks very well. And apparently if you were one of the, the Francophone players that came up through the academy and you're like, oh, my English isn't great. You just walked up to Pogba and Pogba's like, okay, I'm going to look after you, young man. Okay, Ahmad, here's how this senior team works, which apparently Hannibal offered the same thing to Ahmad as well. So I think off the pitch, in that sort of soft space, in that sort of who's going to liaise between the English United players and the Spanish soft group, now that Matt has gone, now that Pogba's gone, who's that bridge, that little bit, you'll miss that in Pogba. But I think if Frank Leon comes in, Ericsson comes in, that technical ceiling, that that I can get the ball and progress it really far deep from deep areas, they won't miss it too much if Frankie comes in. I have one follow-up to my, <laughs> my, my youngster's vibes question. And it's only because I just saw him today on my TV screen and it, it kind of blew my mind because I forgot about him. And I don't want to sound reductive because I know they're fellow countrymen and he's been with United for a while. Do you see Tahith Chong being on this tour for any reason other than being put in a shop window? He had a half-decent loan at Birmingham, and he was playing in central areas as well. Which I well, like, remember how half-decent is is not good. Like, it's yeah. not decent good enough to be good to be a Manchester United player. I I really can't make heads or toes of that of the United Academy right now because the United Academy United's under academy the the under eighteen the under twenty three. The last batch of under 23 were the better, was the best batch of under 23s in a while because there was a lot of underinvestment in there. But also, they, they're not as good as Chelsea's under 23s. They're not but as good as City's under 23s. They're not as good as Liverpool's under 23s. come from that batch of. Yeah. This, yeah like yeah, that was but, my thing at, three years ago was Gomez and Chong. And I was like, are they good or are they the best we've had in a while? They were the, they were the best they've had in a while. But, exactly. And I think they were, they were a step behind the, the, the Cobham excellence and the City excellence. But then you get into the question of what is the point of your academy player? And uh, I, I mean, one of my best friends is a Chelsea fan, and he he talks about this a lot of just the point of Cobham isn't necessarily to create stars. It's to create glue guys. Because Chelsea have enough, Chelsea have enough money, they can just buy stars forever. But you want a glue guy. And the ideal version of that is Mason Mount. Mason Mount is absolutely a top six level central midfielder. Um, and on his day can be one of the best midfielders in a certain game with players and with you know with, against some of the best players on the planet. He's not going to be your superstar, but he can have a starring role. That should be the point of your academy, right? You want to create as many of those as possible. And if you do get a superstar, hooray. I think can that gets Tal- forgotten so quickly. Yeah, can because Tal- it's class of '92 and like how yeah, we develop yeah, superstars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that doesn't happen. You're more likely to get a John O'Shea. And like you but, need to put the superstar next to John O'Shea so John O'Shea could be useful. But even if you look at the class of '92, they're glue guys. Yeah, that's they're, yeah. They're, Paul Scholes just covers up so many horrible sins at Manchester United's midfield because he just fixed that. Um, and even you know, I I love I love Paul Scholes, but Paul Scholes was not as good as Perlo. You know, it's that tiny little thing. And Paul Scholes could, you know, what well, isn't a superstar by his own design, but every now and again, he's had a, all right, fine, I'll score a hat-trick today. Um, and I think, can Talif Jong be a glue guy at Manchester United? Probably not, but also that's not a failing on him. He could probably be a glue guy for 
or Birmingham City, well, probably not Birmingham City because they're a huge financial mess and that's another podcast. Uh, but you could do that for someone else. I think one one thing I am forever interested in, and maybe we'll write an article about it during the international break, which is when was the last time your football club, their number one goalkeeper, when was the last time your goalkeeper came from your academy? That just doesn't happen anymore. Tom Heaton. <laughs> that's it, right it's a thing right so what why why do we even try having academy goalkeepers when academy goal but you if you're a goalkeeper in the academy you know you're not going to be number one for your club you're gonna be number one somewhere else probably because football, football clubs in the Premier League aren't gonna throw in an 18 year old 21 year old goalkeeper anymore the just problem is capitalism boom you don't get relegated you don't want to drop three points where you don't have to so you will eventually find your way within the pyramid and i think that's that's the future of Chong. I think that's the future of a number of the young players that aren't, ha- haven't featured in that FA Youth Cup victory. I think Garnacho is is perfectly prime mounted to to stake his claim on what Manchester United need to be. Uh, and uh, Charlie Savage and Dan Nickbow probably have a good case. But if you're a, if you're a Talif Chong or one of the other players that got your debut in, in that game against PSG, okay. Maybe you should be looking at what Angel Gomez did. I went, do I need to do that too? Which is not, it's fine. Absolutely even the, fine. Even the match against uh, Astana. Yeah. I think, I think that's where the academy needs to get back to. I think, I think that's the sign of how far the academy dropped is that 10, 12 years ago, if you looked at the bottom half of the table, it was filled with United Academy graduates. And there were, I think there were three in that Leicester team that won the title. And it, it was just, the United Academy, I think Sir Alex Ferguson even said it. Like, if you come through the United Academy, you won't, you may not become a Manchester United player, but you'll become a Premier League player. Yeah. And that just doesn't happen anymore. Like, we're not providing players to the league. And when we get back to that level, that's when the cream of the crop will be United standard, as opposed yeah. to you can make the argument that the cream of the crop that's now currently wearing United shirts are really the Premier League players. And I think it's also the thing of you want to be able to sell Chong yeah, that too. <laughs> for a decent wedge. You want to be able to sell Chong for a decent wedge. City are getting very good at selling their young players for 15 million. I think I've seen a tweet the other day joke about how so uh, Southampton have brought in Manchester City's head of recruitment and obviously you know he's ex-City head of recruitment. He knows how good these young players are and he's just buying them from to, to Southampton, which is, I mean, it's fun if you're Southampton, you're going, oh, okay, there's there's something in here. But also, if you're a Man City person, you're going, mm, 15 million a pop here. Cheers, mate. You're doing us a favour, old fella. Um, <laughs> and United aren't good at selling players. Manchester United have made a profit four times in the last decade. And their most recent one was Dan James to Leeds. They need to get good at going, oh, hey, Chong, you, you had a good season at Birmingham. Now you're being sold for 10 million to, to Huddersfield. Or, hey, Jesse Lingard, you had a good six months at West Ham. Off you go to West Ham now for 20 million instead of this situation now where Lingard apparently is tabling offers from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and the academy, yeah, hey, you academy, might join up with Wayne Rooney. Yeah. The well, academy is what's not What's going just, on in that marriage? <laughs> so the academy is not the way the academy looks like in football manager and FIFA, you should also be trying to use it as an economic tool as well as a cultural one. Colin, I'm, I'm ceding it to you. 
you had that question that you wanted. My local recording's completely failed, by the way, so it's just Skype. <laughs> yeah, this. I mean, I can't remember how long it went last year, but I know I divided it up into two parts. But um, <laughs> I mean, that just shows we love talking to you. And you know, thanks, thanks for coming on the podcast again. We really no worries, appreciate man. it. Um, we'll sign things off. Uh, this was something that came out of a podcast Nathan and I did without Polly one time, but um, maybe kind of fitting in the Manchester United, you know, and Torno a club that has often taken advantage of any, you know, cultural mediums to try and push either its history or, you know, it's, you know, season review, DVDs, books, all of, going. Yeah, pushing all <laughs> these things. There's a su- successful HBO show this past year called winning time about yes. the Los Angeles Lakers of the 1980s. And we had yep. the idea of if there was a winning time, Manchester United show that started in uh, my, my starting point was going to be, sometime in the early 1990s because it would be really too messy to do early sir alex ferguson 86 through 90 probably okay um definitely too much to do all that in one season but um yeah i I guess if you have any thoughts on that but also uh casting decisions was a a main topic we came up with the only one we the only one you have cast white guys extremely horribly the way that winning time did the only the only one we have so far is paul mescal as roy Keane, young okay Okay. Oh, no, so, we had one more. We also had James McAvoy as Sir Alex. Okay. So the first he was thing. was up there, yeah, yeah. First thing, I have, I'll admit, I haven't watched Winning Time. I've got it saved on my TiVo box, but I've got, I've got the book. Um. So first thing you do is you start. If you went, okay, Carl, you're making a TV, you're making an entertaining TV show about Manchester United in the nineties. How do you start it? You start Where'd with you Eric. Start Cantona. With the late 80s? I start with Eric Cantona walking in the room. Right. So he's like he's it. your he's your season one protagonist. And okay. I probably I'd probably split it up into, you know, series one is Cantona and how Cantona changes United and brings about that thing. And I'll probably take season one from Cantona turning up in 1991 to 1997, the FA Cup final way he scores and beats Liverpool. And that's your that's your nice little and you instead of fuck Boston and be like, come in, come in, fuck the Spice Boys. <laughs> <laughs> that, that'd be my thing now who who do you cast as like a, a very fun frenchophone to cantona well that that was our question for you oh, <laughs> as, as, as like casting decisions who, who, we, do, I ca- who yeah. do i cast as cantona um i'll tell you what i'd probably just cast cantona the current, like current, present day Cantona, and everyone got right. why have you cast old man Cantona? But he's Cantona. It's, it's funny. Just run with it. This is the talk, this is the sort of TV show we're gonna run here. Um, and I'd, I'd be a lot more meta with it, and I'd drop like editor's notes at the bottom saying this didn't happen because I'm I'm not gonna get sued uh, by you. You clearly Larry Logo. Yeah. You said <laughs> you said you have yeah. winning time because it's very meta. It's very yeah. It's very like that. It's just every time. Every time another white guy like came onto the screen, I was just like, "Wait, that's Larry Bird? Like that? That looks nothing like him. Like that's Pat Riley? Like I, I strongly not. disagree. Both of those castings, I think, were very yeah. well done. James McAvoy would be a good because you were talking about young Ferguson as well. So yeah. Ferguson, when he, his hair isn't white, um, we also threw out Ewan McGregor. We were just trying to think of Scottish people. And, Ewan McGregor. Yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd take Ewan McGregor as, as Alex Ferguson. So, yeah, season one would be the Cantona years, and I'd take it from 91 to 97. And then we do season two would just be the treble. 
and it ends with the treble. Uh, season four would be skipping season three. Yeah, season three is that really annoying thing? Because season four, I think season, season four. Like that mid-year, that like the early two thousands. Yeah, the lean uh, ones. Though. I mean, like, you okay, could have cool. like a Rod Van Nistelrooi. Yeah, so I probably like, yeah, but I think you know, each, each one I'd I'd anchor it on on new player walks in the room, um, and, and I'd, I'd probably finish winning time in 2013 because I just I'm not I'm not doing that. <laughs> well, obviously, well after so that it's not winning time anymore. Yeah, yeah, I mean I mean it, it ends with me walking through, like me and Douchey Street Warehouse, like Harry Maguire's been a what. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I'm, re- that, I'm realizing that's my knowledge of United. French actors is very low. That's what that's how I do a Manchester United winning time. I will tell you, I will I will say this right now. I'm going to speak this into existence because I really want this to happen. I really want H- HBO or someone to do, um, you you know the sort of drama shows where it's two warring clans and they slowly bring them together every now and again. So like Narcos or mm-hmm. or Triple AA. I want that for Barcelona and Real Madrid. And I just want that from, in like drama form. In drama form, you could maybe do a document, but I just want that in drama form. Just this is what those bastards over there are doing. I just want that ascent for the moment Ronaldo arrives, and it's Ronaldo versus Messi. Just that time frame of just those Ooh. two. You know, I essentially want a a dramatization of fear and loathing in La Liga. I was gonna say. Like, it's... <laughs> I bought this book uh, when I was on vacation <laughs> a, a couple of weeks ago. I was going to say if that would be what you base it on. But yeah. I mean, if, if you if um, everyone listens to this podcast, if you haven't read it, go and read Fear, Fear and Loathing in La Liga. It is one of the uh, best sports books. And um, I say sports, not just football books out there. And if you want to do a, uh, a story on like modern, modern Barcelona, just call it Money Heist. <laughs> I thought, just, oh, how are they getting it? And we'll stop it now because if you start talking about how Bart's to get that money, I'll be here forever. I, I'm telling you, Marty Bird is doing the books for that club. Like that's the only explanation I got is Ozark is money laundering for Barcelona. Oh my god! I'm just like, I'm like I'm glad that my my father-in-law is an accountant and like I'm glad that he just has no idea like yeah. about football or anything because I would never get him to shut up like if he understood the accounting behind that and what they were doing because all they're doing is just digging a bigger hole. <laughs> It, there is there is a certain point where creative accounts becomes an art form and Barcelona are. I think they're well it's past not, that. It's it's not it's not a Picasso. It's approaching Jackson Pollock. Just just. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they they did that with uh, the Arthur swap deal. That yeah, was like that was an account. art. Yeah. That was and. Pop. And now they're just like, oh, yeah. let's make it worse. It's uh, I tweeted it earlier that I am um, I now treat. Barcelona, like Adam Sandler's character in Uncut Gems, that you, you will never stop. You're not doing this for the money. Yeah, You're yeah. doing this for that. <gasps> yeah. What, 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 what they're doing is they're they're purchasing something on like the store credit card, yeah. and they run it all the way to the end of the financing period, and then they do that zero percent balance transfer to another credit card. Yeah. So that way they're never paying the interest. Yeah. This is how they win. And they love yeah, it. They're they're slick. Love it. They're, it's slick. not about it's not about the players. It's not about the league titles. It's about it's about the having. High. It's about the high of cooking the books. <laughs> well, I think that's. I think they're trying to like run, uh, just run this enough to, until like I get voted out, and when it all comes, when it comes time to pay the piper, like it's not coming out of my pocket. Because like the way Barcelona set up is like the higher like Laporta eventually will need to pony up the money yeah, comes yeah. out of his pocket. So he's like, well, hopefully I can get this long enough 
that I'm out the door. White knuckle right. Which look, I, I I'll say I've said it many times. Why a time. he came back in the door is a great question. <laughs> I've said it many a time before. Barcelona beat my team in a Champions League final, so therefore, this, <laughs> I I am always going to have. A, a tiny little bit of spite and smile when Barcelona are in trouble. And I'm really sorry. And I don't, I don't put in my copy. I, I, I try Marine Fair and objective, but when Barcelona do things, I'm like, urr, urr, I want revenge for 09. This, this is what I was saying to my friend who's a Liverpool fan yesterday. I was like, as funny as it would be if, you know, the De Jong transfer fell through and it just collapsed all their plans and everything. Like, I need I need Barcelona to be at the bottom a little bit longer. Like it hasn't been long enough. Like I know they blew a three 0 lead in a, in a Champions League semifinal, but that was only three years ago. Yeah. You know, like they were still in a Champions League fi- semifinal three years ago. Like I need them. I need I them. Need that, the, that I need a banter, banter era. I yeah, think, it, it's, I watched... it's it's annoying that they've gotten good so quickly. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think <laughs> my girlfriend once walked, walked in. The, I was watching the uh, Champions League highlights when they lost and got confirmed into the Europa League. And my girlfriend walked in and said, "I've never, I've rarely seen you watch football with such a big smile on your face, and it's not involving your team." Like the horrible Rick Scrum's like, yes, yeah, sickos, <laughs> sickos, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry I'm, to Barca, but it's it's so not your fault. It's it's entirely based on I, really I highly doubt United were going to win in 2009. Are, I highly doubt Barcelona fans are listening to this podcast, so I think you're safe. I was I mean, so most Manchester United fans oh, don't listen to this podcast, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, Carl, thank you so much for coming on. I hope we didn't keep you too long, and I hope you know it was worth your time. Uh, and uh, you know we love having you on, so come back Thanks, whenever. Man. It's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Let's do it again just before the World Cup. Let's do it. Let's, let's do it right before the final when England are playing, you know, France or whoever. Colin. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, uh, <laughs> England aren't even winning their group. Polly, come on. I will say, I will say um, if you haven't, if you are of a, you know, United States men's national team persuasion and you haven't looked up the story of the last time the United States played Iran in the World Cup. Look it up. It is fascinating. I believe Newsweek did a story about it all because it, you know, several years after um, the Iraq, the Gulf War, Iran, USA, group stage, 1998. And they essentially spent a month figuring out what should the USA hand over to Iran in the bit where the two captains meet and hand each other a reef. Uh, so, it's one of those amazing football stories that have nothing to do about football, but there's so much because it's football and it's so much imagery about it. It's just that one of those things like you would not believe how much time and effort went into this one football and photo. So uh, give that a Google, give that a look around USA, 1998. That's your homework for this. Week. We'll do.